Good morning, everyone, and welcome to our church service this morning. As we're here to gather to remember Good Friday and the crucifixion of Christ. Today is a day that we know as Good Friday. It is a day where Christians all over the world remember the crucifixion of our Lord and Savior. The selfless act of our Lord is what we could maybe consider as the climax of our faith. Without the cross, there is no Christianity. Paul tells the church in Corinth that though the Jews demand a signs and Greeks seek wisdom, he, Paul, preaches Christ crucified. That is his focus. The focus of the gospel message that our Lord and Savior was crucified on a cross. R.C. Sproul, in his book, The Truth of the Cross, writes this, One of the most important subdivisions of theology is Christology, which is the study of the person and work of Christ. Within that field of study, when we want to get at the aspect that we may call the crux of the matter, Sorry, when we want to get to the aspect that we may call the crux of the matter of Jesus' person and work, we go immediately to the cross. The words crucial and crux both have their root in the Latin word for cross, and they have come into the English language with their current meanings because the concept of the cross is at the very center and core of biblical Christianity. In a very real sense, the cross crystallizes the essence of the ministry of Jesus. End quote. As such, the wooden cross has become a well recognized symbol for the Christian faith. We see it on pulpits, it's part of church logos, Bible covers, Bible cases. We see it everywhere as it relates to the Christian church. But like many other popular symbols, The cross has become such a common theme that it may often be easy for us as Christians to overlook the significance of what it represents. Last week, Pastor Mike gave us a vivid picture of the cross and how Jesus, beaten, bleeding, bruised, would have been tied to this heavy wooden beam, and he would have been forced to march through the town in humiliation before being lifted onto the post to which he was brutally nailed. And he hung there in agony until he died. Jesus, the Son of God. And with a focus today, Good Friday, on this act of the crucifixion, I want to look at three results accomplished through the cross of Christ. And you see them on your outline that you received this morning, three results accomplished through the cross of Christ. The first one, through the cross of Christ, God's wrath is satisfied. The second one, God's love is exemplified. And the third one, God's name is glorified. So number one, through the cross, God's wrath is satisfied. Romans 1.18 tells us, 
For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. We start by looking at the subject of God's wrath, a subject too often ignored or rejected by many professing Christians. It's a lot harder to consider God's wrath than, say, his love. We may even consider these two as being opposed to each other, but any true consideration of God's attributes helps us <coughs> excuse me, helps us to see that all of his attributes, his love, his wrath, his justice, his holiness, all of his attributes exist together and are at all times equally active. For God is immutable. He does not change. J.I. Packer, in his book, Knowing God, defines wrath as deep, intense anger and indignation. Anger is defined as stirring of resentful displeasure and strong antagonism by a sense of injury or insult, and indignation as righteous anger aroused by injustice and baseness. End quote. One of my Greek lexicons speaks of the wrath of God as that reaction of his divine nature against sin, which in anthropomorphic language is called anger. See, we have no problem talking about God's love, and we shouldn't. It is a major theme, and we'll be looking at that later as well. But again, God's anger towards sin, his wrath on the ungodly, is something that we often avoid in conversation. It's often avoided from many pulpits, but it is something, especially on a morning like today, where we look at the cross on Good Friday, why such a brutal form of punishment and suffering? Why the cross? The scriptures make the point that just as God is good to those who trust him, his wrath is on those who do not. Turn with me to the book of Nahum. In chapter 1, and we'll be read verses 2 to 8. Nahum chapter 1, verses 2 to 8. The Lord is jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps his wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power. And the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. His way is in whirlwind and storm, and the clouds are the dust of his feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up all the rivers. Bashan and Carmel wither. The bloom of Lebanon withers. The mountains quake before him. The hills melt. The earth heaves before him. The world and all who dwell in it. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire, and the rocks are broken into pieces by him. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. 
He knows those who take refuge in him. But with an overflowing flood, he will make a complete end of the adversaries and will pursue his enemies into darkness. God's wrath on the unrighteous is as much part of the gospel message as his love for the righteous. God's wrath to be poured out on the unrighteous is the very reason why we need a Savior. The Apostle Paul's words in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 6 through 10. are sufficient to show that Nahum's emphasis on God's wrath is not distinct to the Old Testament scriptures alone. It is not only in the Old Testament where we read of God's wrath, but as well as we read Paul's words in chapter 1, verses 6 to 10. Since indeed God considered it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you, and to grant relief to you who are afflicted, as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. In flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. When he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. God's wrath is a very common subject. And clearly the subject of God's divine wrath is one that the biblical writers inspired by the spirit of God did not avoid. They did not try to diminish it and so likewise neither should we. In fact, if God did not react adversely against evil, he would not be morally perfect. Consider that. His wrath must be poured out against evil, for he is morally perfect. And if he did not have that reaction, he would not be perfect. And so we see that even his wrath is part of his attributes in making him a perfect God. But it is due to his moral perfection that he reveals his divine wrath against all that oppose his law. Now if God's wrath, his anger, his indignation are revealed against those who oppose his law, as we read earlier in Romans 1.18, against all ungodliness and unrighteousness, then who does this speak of? Paul also states in Romans chapter 3, verse 10, none is righteous. No, not one. God's wrath to be poured out on the unrighteous, and none is righteous. No, not one. You see, God is our righteous judge. Turn with me to Psalm chapter 7. And as our righteous judge, he judges all people according to his holy standard. In Psalm chapter 7, verses 8 and 9. The psalmist writes, The Lord judges the peoples. Judge me, O Lord, according to my righteousness, 
and according to the integrity that is in me. Oh, let the evil of the wicked come to an end, and may you establish the righteous, you who test the minds and hearts, O righteous God. God is a righteous judge. He judges all people according to his standard. His wrath will be poured out on the unrighteous. There is none righteous. No, not one. We are all accountable to God as our judge. Each person will one day stand before our creator God in judgment. And we can rest assured he will be just. He must use right judgment. God cannot go against his own nature of righteousness. He must use right judgment or he would not be righteous. And according to Romans 2 verse 6, he will render to each one according to their works. Why, we may ask. Well, the verse just before that in Romans 2 verse 5 says, Because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. And then he goes on, and he will render to each one according to his works. We will be judged by our works. And consider this, we are slaves to sin. We are not free to live as we please, but we desire to gratify the lusts of our flesh. Jesus himself tells us in the Gospel of John, chapter 8, verse 34, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. Paul says in 2 Timothy 2.26 that we are in the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. In fact, John tells us not only do we do the will of the devil, but our, in, in our unregenerate state, this too is our will. Jesus' own words recorded in John 8.44, You are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desire. We really are in a hopeless state. The very inclination of our human nature is evil. We cannot please God. We cannot please Him. Romans 8 verse 8 states this very clearly when Paul writes, those who are in the flesh cannot please Him. We cannot please God. Likewise, we are slaves to sin. A slave cannot set himself free. No more than a blind person can regain his sight on his own, or the deaf can return hearing to his ears by himself. We cannot do these things. We are dead in our trespasses and sins, as Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2. In Ephesians chapter 2, the first three verses, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of our body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. 
We are dead in our trespasses and sins. Can we bring ourselves to life? We are children of wrath. Can we appease that wrath? These rhetorical questions paint a very bleak portrait. And it doesn't do much for our self-esteem. In fact, it should have the opposite effect on our personal disposition than which is so prominently promoted in our culture and sadly often in our churches as well. Where many are told to just be yourself. Just feel better about yourself. Just follow your own heart. I think Jeremiah has something to say about that. The heart is desperately wicked and deceitful above all things. Who can know it? You see, the state of man, it helps us to understand our position before God as an unrighteous, unregenerate person. We are under the wrath of God and deservedly so. This is what we have earned. This is God's righteous judgment on us. You see, the point is, we are sinners. And as such, we have offended a perfectly righteous God with our sin. And once again, as we read earlier in Romans 1.18, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness. Now, how does that truth make us feel? The question that we can ask, and especially for those who are not in Christ Jesus. The reality of God's wrath being poured out on mankind, on the unrighteousness of man, for eternity is a weight and a thought that should crush us and drive us to our knees in repentance. And we can do nothing apart from divine intervention. Apart from the work of the Spirit of God, we are helpless and hopeless to do anything about our spiritual condition in and of ourselves. And in this state, the full wrath of God will be poured out on all who do not trust him alone for their salvation. But that's the beauty of the gospel. That's the good news. It doesn't end there. God does not leave us hanging in this hopeless state. God does not leave us under his judgment and wrath without a way of escape, without a way to be reconciled. We have a perfect Savior. who made a way for us to be reconciled to a holy God. Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. Two verses before the opening verse that I read. Paul says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it, the gospel, is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, And also the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. The righteous shall live by faith. 
and the wrath of God will be revealed on the unrighteous. So then the next question, how do we partake in God's righteousness so that we don't fall under the wrath of God? How can we then as unrighteous sinners who have offended a perfectly holy God, how can we partake in the righteousness of God so that we won't fall under his wrath? 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. And in case you haven't noticed, we are jumping around quite a bit. And sorry, that's 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. Paul writes regarding the crucifixion of Christ for our sake. For our sake he made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin. Jesus Christ, the perfect Savior, became sin for our sake so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. God did make a way. And when we trust in Christ alone, our sin is transferred onto him. Consider this. Our sin is transferred onto God the Son, Jesus Christ our Lord, as he was hanging on the cross. Our sin was transferred onto him while he was on the cross. And the wrath of God was poured out on him. The wrath of God was poured out on his only son, Jesus Christ. And the righteousness of Christ in this transaction was put on us. What a mind-boggling thought. We cannot fathom the work that happened on the cross as Christ hung on the cross, bloodied, and crucified in agony. He took the sin, my sin. And if you're a child of God, he took your sin. And he took it upon himself. And as though the shame and the pain and agony of the cross wasn't enough, the holy and the just wrath of God was poured out onto him. To punish our sin. Our sin was the reason why Christ had to die in bloody agony. He couldn't just lay down and peacefully die. It was for our sin that our Lord was mocked and scorned and beaten and crucified. It was for our sin that the wrath of God was poured out on the only righteous human that has ever walked this earth because he took our unrighteousness upon himself. Jumping back to Romans chapter 3, verse 23. Romans 3, verse 23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. 
and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time so that he might be the just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Jesus Christ, God the Son, became a willing and sufficient sacrifice for all who believe. He turned aside the wrath of God. This is what the word propitiation speaks of. That he, Jesus, turned aside the holy and just wrath of God that was due us. It was meant to destroy our sin. He turned it aside by taking the wrath of God upon himself on the cross. Then the wrath of God was poured out on him. And in this single act, in the death of Jesus Christ, the wrath of God was satisfied. And this means for us who trust in this work of Christ, Paul says, Romans 5, 9, we have now been justified by his blood. Much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. Because the sacrifice of Jesus Christ satisfied the wrath of God we can be justified by faith in Jesus Christ. This takes us to our second point. Through the cross, the love of God is exemplified. Through the cross, God's love is exemplified. John 15, 13 writes, Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. Jesus tells us that no one can have a greater love than this than to lay down your life for friends. The greatest act of life, sorry, the greatest act of love, according to Jesus, is to lay down one's life for someone else. And that is exactly what Jesus did. If you're still in Romans, turn to chapter 5, verse 6 through 8. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us, in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God showed his love for us, that while we were still sinners, deserving of his wrath, Christ died for us. God the Son showed the love of God in assuming human form and keeping God's law perfectly Becoming the sufficient sacrifice for our sins. 
We read earlier in Romans 3 that the righteousness of God was manifested to all of us through faith in the work of Christ. And we are justified by his grace through faith in the gospel, through faith in the work of Christ, through faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. The life of Jesus Christ displayed the righteousness of God. And because we are slaves to sin, we needed someone who is not a slave to sin. Someone who conquered sin by their life. And the writer of Hebrews tells us in chapter 4, 14. Chapter 4, 14 and 15. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, and note this last line, yet without sin. Jesus Christ is our high priest, displayed the righteousness of God in his life. We are sinners. We are not righteous. We needed a sacrifice, someone who had conquered sin by their life, and we see Jesus Christ, our great high priest, though he was tempted as we are, yet he was without sin. And because the life of Christ displayed the righteousness of God, his death was able to satisfy the wrath of God, as we saw earlier. All this... This atoning work of Jesus Christ was because of the great love that God has for his children. John 3.16 For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Jesus became a sacrifice according to the will of God by becoming a man and being obedient to God even unto death. Continue jumping through the scriptures. Let's turn to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 through 8. And speaking of Jesus Christ, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. He emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. In verse 6, we see Jesus' deity verified. He was in the form of God. The writer of Hebrews in chapter 1 verse 3 says, He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Jesus Christ is God. He is 100% God, though he also was man. And in Philippians 2.7 we read that Jesus emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Not then taking the form of the servant. He did not empty himself and then took on the form of the servant. But this very emptying consisted of him by taking on the form of the servant. We see an example here of what maybe we could call subtraction by addition. Jesus was fully God, 
But the act of adding the human nature did not remove his deity at all. But rather, Paul is stressing that Christ, who had all the privileges that were rightly his as the king of the universe, gave them up to become an ordinary Jewish baby bound for the cross. The very radiance of God, the very form of God, he gave up these privileges to become an ordinary Jewish baby knowing that his end would be the cross. Christ made himself nothing by taking the form of a servant. The emptying consisted of his becoming human, not of his giving up any part of his deity. Let's not mistake that. Jesus is 100% God, 100% man. Then in verse 8 of Philippians 2, we see he humbled himself to the point of death. Death even on the cross. The Roman cross was not just considered some convenient form of execution, but rather the ultimate sign of indignity and contempt, where the prisoner would be shamed while dying in excruciating pain. Because Jesus was God in human form, he was able to provide this acceptable sacrifice. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 5 through 10. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body have you prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. When he said above, When he said above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. Then he added, behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Jumping to verse 14, for by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. In the incarnation, life and death of Jesus Christ, we see the ultimate example of God's love. Jesus became a willing sacrifice knowing that he would be hated. He would be shamed, scorned, and murdered by his own creation, his creatures, Yet he endured patiently because of his love for the very people who despised him. He endured the anguish of the cross. The wrath of the Father was poured out on him because he loved us. Truly, no greater love can exist than this, to lay down one's life for a friend. And so we see that through the cross, The love of God 
is exemplified. Which brings us to our final point. Through the cross, God's name is glorified. The Greek word translated as glory speaks of honor and worship. One definition I read on the glory of God went like this. The glory of God is the magnificence, worth, loveliness, and grandeur of his many perfections, which he displays in his creative and redemptive acts in order to make his glory known to those in his presence. God's glory is revealed in all things for the purpose of drawing people to worship him. By giving him glory, when we hear the phrase, we give God the glory, we give all the glory to God, we are not adding to his glory. We have no glory to give him. God is all glorified. And he is the one who glorified himself. So by giving him glory, we are not adding to his glory. We are acknowledging that which is due him. We acknowledge that glory which is due him, though often imperfectly, but by worshiping him and honoring him in our lives, in our thoughts, and in our deeds. But we know God does all things according to his purpose according to his will, and for his own glory to be shown in his creation. Therefore, through his plan of salvation, the incarnation, the suffering, the death of his son, ultimately God reveals his own glory. In John 13, 31 to 32, Jesus verifies that the Father is glorified through the glorification of the Son, in his crucifixion, when he wrote, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Bit of a tongue twister. But we see ultimately the focus that the scriptures give us on the glory of God and how he is the one who glorifies himself through the glory of Christ. He glorifies Christ and through that glorification he receives the glory. It has nothing to do with us. So when we give glory to God, we're acknowledging the glory that he has, not adding to that In John chapter 17, in his high priestly prayer, Jesus reveals the glory he gave the Father through accomplishing the work for which he was sent to do. In John chapter 17, verses 1 through 5, when Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, The hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given to him. And this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Verse 
I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Jesus Christ glorified the Father through the work of his cross. Jesus Christ gave glory to the Father through accomplishing what he had been sent to do. Take you to one more passage, 1 Corinthians chapter 1. First Corinthians chapter 1, starting in verse 18. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since, in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs, and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews, and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are. So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. God has chosen to glorify himself in making foolish the wisdom of man, in providing a way of salvation that foolish human thinking could not have comprehended and we see even in a world today how the world rejects this message they do not believe it they hate it they call it foolishness folly it makes no sense to them but God brought this about so that we may not boast in our own wisdom. We may not boast in our own strength. Our wisdom and strength are as nothing compared to God. Paul says, Oh, the depth 
of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. The depth of the riches of wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable are his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things To him, to God, be glory forever. Amen. God made a way of salvation through the cross of Christ that man can only deem as foolish. Lest our eyes be opened by God himself to see the marvelous wisdom that he has portrayed in this salvation plan. And for each one, we recognize the wrath due us. But we in faith turn to this substitute that God provided a sufficient sacrifice in the Lord Jesus Christ, who though being God himself came to earth, assumed human flesh, was killed by his creation, kept the law perfectly, became this sacrifice for us, lest we turn from our sin, turn from our wicked ways, and look to Jesus Christ alone as our sufficient sacrifice and trust that he has accomplished this salvation on our behalf. Then we too can have the righteousness of Christ Transfer to us. And when we stand before God as a righteous judge, he will judge righteously. We saw that in Psalm chapter 7. But we can then one day stand before this righteous judge cloaked in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And this is the only way by which God's wrath is removed from us because it was placed on his only son, because he loved us while we were yet sinners. And we trust in that work of Christ. We are cloaked in that righteousness of Christ. And when God looks at us, he sees Jesus Christ. And all the glory goes to him. All the glory goes to God as he glorified himself through his plan of salvation. A plan, as we saw, in which his wrath is satisfied. At the very same time, his love, his deep, great, unbounding love is exemplified and ultimately His name, the name of God, is glorified. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you again this day for the cross. We thank you for all that you have accomplished through the work of the cross and through the work of your Son, Jesus Christ. And God, my prayer goes out that each one that may be listening today 
or to this in a future time, if they do not know you as their, as their Savior, God, that you would remove the scales from their eyes, help them to see this glorious plan of salvation that you have provided. Draw them to repentance that they too might escape the wrath that is to come. That they too might find the comfort and knowledge of salvation that comes through Jesus Christ and trusting Him alone. And for each one here that already is a child of God, Lord, help us to rest in that surety of the righteousness of Christ and help us to never cease in bringing glory to Your name for the work that you have done. Amen.